Hello and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. My name is Andy Woods. On today's podcast, I was lucky enough to catch up with STEM She Can Ambassador Katie King. Katie is a positive advocate for STEM and in particular encouraging girls to explore the opportunities and exciting careers that are available to them in the science and technology sphere. She's been involved in maths education in schools as well as working with her mum, Carol Vorderman, to develop and present the Year 7 material for the Pearson Maths Factor programme. At the time of recording, Katie was in the final stages of her PhD in nanotechnology at the University of Cambridge, where she also completed her undergraduate degree. During the podcast, we discuss all things science, but also delve into the importance of resilience, grasping opportunities, and staying positive when times get tough. It's an enlightening chat, and I hope you enjoy Katie's View from the Lab. I'm joined by Katie King today. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Great to be here. Uh, really nice to have you on this morning. Um, I really want to start with uh, talking about what you're doing at the moment. So you recently worked with um, your mum, Carol Vorderman, on the Mass Factor, uh, working on some Year 7 Mass content. You've also been currently finishing your PhD in Chemistry. Hopefully by the time this goes out, it might even be finished. We never know. Um, how did you get involved in the Mass Factor, first of all? Do you want to tell us about that? So actually, I've, I've uh, done some work for the Maths Factor for about 10 years now, sort of doing little bits of maths lessons here and there. But it was only last year uh, that I actually recorded these Year 7 maths videos, because before my PhD, I was a maths and physics secondary school teacher, and I really wanted to get involved. And so mum said, oh, yeah, well, why don't you help me do some of these Year 7 maths lessons? We're branching into secondary school. So I absolutely jumped at the opportunity because education is so important to me um, and I wanted to do my bit to help. So how did you find that experience? Was it how did it compare to obviously teaching a year seven class uh, in, a, in a school compared to obviously having to do it to camera? Was it easier? Did it have different challenges? What did you find about the, the two, two different experiences? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, it was much easier to control everybody in the room. <laughs> of course. But, but no, it definitely brought its own challenges. I think what it made me realise was um, uh, made me concentrate on every single word that I was saying. Because when you're in a classroom, you can much more easily explore different ways of explaining the same thing and sort of react to how the children are reacting. But when you're filming it, you've got no child sat in front of you uh, responding to what you're saying so you can't you have to really think about how you're explaining it in order to like make sure that as many children as possible will be able to understand what you're trying to say so I think I just tried to explain the principles in as many in a, in a few ways to make sure that all the children listening would have a way to ac access like what I was saying um, but it was it was a bit weird when you ask a question to the camera and there's no child responding. So um, I missed that part. I really missed it. And did you reflect after doing that kind of two camera work? Did it make you feel like that you presented things maybe in a teaching environment or even, you know, when you've got to give talks on things Did it make you think differently about what you'd say or how you prepare for kind of future speaking events at all? Yeah, I think, you know, you, with all these things, you have to think about your audience. <laughs> and so an audience of year sevens would be quite different, but to like a, an audience of, um, of experts in a field. But it definitely made me, uh, has definitely made me realise that it's important to really think about things before you say it and not just rush into it. 
Of course. Um, talking about maths and growing up, um, obviously you've, you've come from very good um, uh, stock, as it were, some excellent maths and, and engineering backgrounds uh, um, with Carol. Um, what was it like growing up in terms of your experience of maths and science? Was it something that was really kind of not forced on you or encouraged or what was the kind of growing up experience like about um, maths and school uh, and all those kind of areas? Yeah, so actually, so both my parents uh, were really into maths and very good at maths. So I think it was always something that um, that we didn't shy away from. There was never a bad word said about maths or science in the household. It was always something that was interesting and we'd ask questions. And, and as a child, I'd always sort of ask questions um, and trying to understand the world around me to my parents, which would probably got very irritating. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Um, but yes, it was something that was encouraged. Um, but I just guess naturally just enjoyed it, enjoyed asking questions and enjoyed playing with numbers. So I, I always saw maths and science as sort of playing and trying to work things out. Um, and that's what I really enjoyed doing. Did you have any kind of passions back then, that kind of primary school age? Were you one of those kids who were into dinosaurs or space or, um, or were you, you know, <laughs> what were your passions when you were a much younger child? When I was, it's actually quite hard to remember. So when I was really young, sort of, yeah, under the age of 10, I I really loved doing creative uh, creativity as well. So like, I really loved doing baking and painting and I loved doing, um, I loved, I loved maths and science and space was definitely an area for me for sure. But I think actually under the age of 10, I was kind of interested in a, in a lot of different areas and it wasn't until later on that I, really uh fell in love with stem so i must i was thinking my next question was going to be about um, motivation in stem i suspect you didn't need any um a kind of uh, motivation in terms of doing your maths homework etc because my, my some of my kids are very math neg math negative i come from a science-ish background um, but some of them are more keen than others so for you maths was never a kind of a chore for you you'd say yeah, I'd say that's right. I always saw it as I really enjoyed it. And I did it every day, probably from about the age of five. So that kind of that daily practice made me feel quite comfortable in the classroom. So yeah. it made me like, I would be able to think that little bit further if I if I felt like I understood the basics, you know, my, I knew my times tables, and I knew how to, I felt comfortable and confident with these things. It just meant that it, I I could go into maths and science lessons feeling that bit stronger. So, um, but saying that, there have always been a couple of topics that has taken me a while to get my head around. So even though I have loved it and I have that enjoyment for it, it hasn't always been a walk in the park. So that was going to be my next question. Actually. I was going to say some, some people who are obviously very naturally a bit stronger at maths, I guess, um, don't sometimes understand uh, other children's difficulties to a certain extent or, or your peers mm. difficulties um what were those topics that you kind of can you well was it much later on which you kind of got stuck on some maths topics or were there any things like in your early school career which you meant oh I really didn't get long division for a while and then I, it really clicked with me what were the things that kind of were the stumbling blocks mathematically for you mm. so I'd say mathematically early on I think it took me a little bit of time with long division now you mentioned that I'm like yes I remember having <laughs> all of those long de like decimal places and getting confused and not writing my numbers clearly enough and just finding it a little bit frustrating but um yeah it it was trigonometry actually was one Sokotoa 
I was like, how, how, how is this working? And it took me a little bit of time to actually work out. And also, this, and this was later on in the maths syllabus, was integration of hyperbolic functions, which is a bit of a mouthful. But that, oh man, I remember spending hours and hours trying to work out the best way to uh, integrate my hyperbolic functions. So um, yeah, whenever I, I think something that I've always done when I come across something that I find challenging is just really trying to break it down and pinpoint exactly where my understanding is lacking and then working on that and asking the questions about that exact exact area um, to actually you know, progress and get better. So, um, so yeah, I'd say it's just been brute force to get through those things and determination, but getting through it the other end always feels great. Of course. And obviously reflecting on your kind of... Um experience of doing teaching were there any things that you when you went back to the classroom you were actually surprised that kids didn't get which you thought maybe were quite straightforward concepts obviously you know you've achieved a lot academically yourself but was it a surprise for some things that they just found it difficult to access um no I don't think so I I the way I see it is like every every child and everyone is completely different and just because I see something one way like another another person will see it in a completely different way. So I wasn't surprised that um, that a child might not get something that I felt I was um, easier. But it it what it did challenge me to do was actually to really like find a way to really explain something very fundamental. So um, so that was a challenge, but it wasn't it wasn't surprising. It just uh, brought about its new challenges. Like, how do you explain something that you uh, just take as a given or that, you know, how do you explain it? And it really tests your own fundamental understanding of, you know, what is a percentage? How are you going to explain that to a child that just does not understand what percentage is? Mm, Yeah, it can be very challenging. I mean, thinking about the, um, obviously, your educational journey, coming up towards A-levels, I guess, one of the questions that popped in my mind was that, um, and reflecting, because now I have young children, and the degree to which your mum or dad helped you with things, because I may be a bit more um, hard on my son, who I th- feel like that if I tell him how to do something, um, or just give him the answer, you see what I mean, he hasn't really learned anything, and he needs to work a little bit hard to get to the answer. Was there a point at which your parents said, uh, no, Kate, you've got to work this out yourself. Or did they always, because they had that strength, strength in maths and engineering, would they always help you? Or, or was there a point that maybe they'd forgotten that bit anyway, or or that, that they said, well, actually, it'd be better if you try and try this way or, or what have you? Mm, good question. I'd say as I was getting later on in, in STEM subjects, so definitely towards like well, GCSE and A-level, um, particularly A level because that starts getting very very specific and it goes way past um, like day to day maths. Yeah. Um, I'd say that I would ask I would ask for help, but then <laughs> but then it would take a little bit of time for them to like maybe to remember actually how it works, you know, differentiation and integration. Mm. And I think at one point I seem to remember me just being like, oh, you know what, doesn't matter <laughs> because I was getting <laughs> frustrated um, because it was taking me a while to explain <laughs> 
explain where I was having the issue to get their help. So, um, so rather than them saying you should do it on your own, I think I was, I think I actually said, you know what, I'll just, I'll just work it out myself. <laughs> Taking too long. Yeah, which isn't very fair of me. So, um, obviously you must've done STEM A-levels, I'm assuming. You must've done a bit of maths, a bit of physics, a bit of chemistry, I'm assuming. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you went to Cambridge to study natural sciences. Now, natural sciences, um, from my knowledge of it, is it's quite a broad degree, would you say? And you, and you get to pick different modules, is it, per, per year or per, per term? How does it, how's it organised at Cambridge? Yeah, so uh, if you want to do any science at Cambridge, you have to go for natural sciences. Which you have is to, course. Okay. You have to, right. and you specify whether you're on the physical side or the biological side. So the way that the course works is that, as you say, it's very broad in the first year. So you pick a couple of um, of different subjects, and that, and it can be physics, chemistry, and biology if you want it to be. Um, and everyone has to do maths in their first year to a varying degree, depending on your background. And then as you progress through the years, so in your second year, you then have a list of about 22 different sciences, some of which you might have never heard of before, and you have to pick three. So again, you can stay broad or you can sp- you can pick specific subjects to try and like, um, become uh, yeah more specific in your training. And then in your third year, again, you pick and you specialize even more, which can open up a fourth year um, which is an, a master's uh, a master's year as well. So for me, I always wanted to do this course, the natural sciences, because I wanted that breadth of science. So during A-level, um, I actually always saw myself more as a physicist. Okay. So I kind of picked chemistry as my fourth one, like, oh, okay, I'm going to pick chemistry, which is a bit ironic seeing as I'm now doing a PhD in chemistry. But anyway, um, so I saw myself more on the physics side of things. So, but I wasn't sure because I loved all science. So I wanted to do this course to allow me that breadth to kind of learn different ways of looking at the same problem through different subjects and then, um, and then specialised eventually. I guess with atmospheric chemistry, I suspect there's quite a bit of maths in there as well as the chemistry. So I guess it kind of all kind of um, fits together quite nicely after you've done those those, dis- those those seemingly disparate courses. But I guess they link in together when you're doing your, your research. Now, going to Cambridge uh, for a lot of people might think, well, that's that's, you know, it's a world class university. There's talented people there. There's obviously hardworking people there. Um, did you ever feel overwhelmed uh, in terms of God, there's a lot, lots of uh, bright people around here. Um, did you, did you ever kind of question yourself? Think, oh, am I in the right place? Because I, I, I felt that when I went to university. You think you're great when you're at school, you look at school, and when you go to the big wide world, and you, and you think, oh, actually, there's, there's hundreds of people that are, uh, are really good at science, really good at maths. Um, did you ever feel like that, or did, was everyone, you know, so friendly that it didn't matter? Did you ever have that self doubt sometimes? Oh, the self-doubt has played its part always. Um, I, <laughs> unfortunately, I'd say imposter syndrome is something that, um, yeah, I've had to learn to to deal with. Yeah. Um, but yes, like when you're surrounded by people who, who um, a lot, well, a huge number of whom have didn't have to work particularly hard during A levels, mm. and then you know, I I worked really hard for my A levels. I remember it like I I dedicated a lot of time. Um, and effort uh, yeah towards my studies and I remember arriving um, as a fresher and it was actually in the fir- it was a f- first day at university and we had all the scientists in a room together and one of the professors said 
oh, well, I'm sure that um, you all breeze through A-levels and none of you had to try particularly hard. Um, now you're going to have to try. And I remember sitting there thinking, what? You guys didn't have to try? Like, I tried. I tried really hard. Like, I, if, if I'm around people who never tried, then, oh, man, I must be the most stupid person in this room then. And I remember feeling that very strongly. But then I realized sort of actually going through um, the years, I just thought, actually, no, I'm, I'm here. I, I work to be here and, um, and I'm making the most of it. And actually, there's a huge range of abilities um, and they, you'll always have your geniuses, always. And um, there'll always be people far smarter than you. But I think if you work hard and you just dedicate yourself to something, then, yeah, you can get there. That's fine. And, and how did you find the course in terms of was year one a nightmare? Was year two a nightmare? Was year three? Were they all nightmares or were some <laughs> slightly better than others in terms of the challenge of the course? Did it feel a bit nicer in year one or, or was it not the case? I think it was a, a initiation by fire, to be honest. So year one... <laughs> Year one was um, was very intense because of the breadth of subjects, the breadth and depth of the topics, because you have to be at the same standard as another student in another university doing one of those subjects, but you're doing several. So um, there was just so much to learn. So I remember feeling quite shocked because it felt like, in terms of content, almost like we were doing an A-level every three weeks. It was just crazy volumes. So I think that that was the one aspect that was new compared to school. And also, um, if you fell off the wagon, as it were, during lectures, um, the, the, the next lecture would build on the previous one. So if you didn't quite get something in one of those lectures, you only had two days and then they'd be building off it again. So it if you fell off the wagon, it was quite hard to get back on. It involved a lot of extra self-motivated study. And you couldn't really ask people. So, yeah, that was that was tough, but great. Really great. That's good, good to hear. You got, got through those, those, those tough times. Um, now, with obviously, you're very busy with the academic side of things, but at Cambridge, you joined the RAF Volunteer Reserves. Um, what made you decide to do that? And what did you, what did you get out of that kind of uh, organisation? Yeah, so um, yes, I joined the University Air Squadron, which was one of the, well, probably one of the best things that I have ever been a part of. So um, I've always, always loved aviation. um, And I was in the CCF when I was at school. So and I wanted to like learn more about what it, what it was like to be part of the RAF. Um, So I was very tempted to actually sign up as a pilot with the RAF um, after my undergraduate time but this yeah basically the purpose of the university air squadron was to to give students um a taster of what life would be like if they were to join up in the military Um, and they have you have adventure training a lot of leadership training um and uh different experiences so i learned a lot about myself during that time because i was exposed to different experiences that i would just never have otherwise had um, and you build some incredibly strong friendships because you get to know each other so well through these difficult experiences. So I um, absolutely love that time. So something you definitely kind of um, encourage other young people to get involved in that if they can. If you can, and if it's something that interests you, 100% d- 
definitely. Um, and if it's not RAF, then there's the sort of the army and navy equivalents. Um, but I would say that, that like, for me, the Air Squadron was my family throughout university. Um, and even now, like, I'm in contact with so many people still. And you just, uh, you learn, you learn a lot. <laughs> you learn a lot. Um, so I'm very grateful for those times. And you quite like the outdoors anyway. Do you want to say to us about any of the other passions you have? Because you like the outdoors and away from the, obviously the classroom, the academic stuff. Is it what else do you engage in so to keep yourself sane? Yeah. So I love being outside and I love doing different expeditions. So um, throughout my time at university, I did uh, like a canoe trip around Denmark and um, uh, I think I did, yeah, I did a hike in the Arctic Circle at one point, which was very hard um, and have just been really, I really enjoy pushing my physical abilities uh, as well. And so trying to do any aspect that will will push that, I really enjoy. So I mean, I'm trying to finish my pilot's license at the moment as well. But unfortunately, COVID kind of put a spanner in the works with that. So it's been delayed <laughs> quite a lot. Um, but yes, that's something that I hope to complete uh, pretty soon. But I, yeah, I really enjoy getting outdoors and being in nature and sort of reconnecting because sometimes work and everything academic academia academia can get um pretty pretty stressful so it's nice to reconnect you're currently in the process of finishing off your phd in chemistry what is the focus of your research so now i'm doing uh, my phd in chemistry and it's specifically in um, an area called nanotechnology so i'm looking to build a delivery system that can target cancer cells and deliver drugs into cancer cells while avoiding healthy cells. So if you just were to take a chemotherapeutic drug, it doesn't have any like targeting effects. So that's why you can have some really nasty side effects because it can attack healthy cells as well as the cancer cells. So, um, so what I'm trying to do is from a materials perspective and a chemistry perspective is to actually design and build a delivery system um, that can target the cancer cells to minimize um, side effects. But it's very much from a sort of um, building of the delivery system rather than from the sort of medical side, if that makes sense. Okay, so kind of more of an engineering problem. Looking at specific molecules or rather than nanobots, you were talking about actual molecules that you might trap the chemotherapy drugs in. Yes, exactly that. So sort of different molecules that you can... Um, that you can use to carry the drug and then it's based off like of nanoparticles so it's not it's not as uh, big as some devices are they're more well, they're tiny they're on the nanometer scale but um but yes it's sort of linking using chemistry to build this system and then see how it works in a biological environment Okay, sounds really, really fascinating, but really, really important and, and a applicable work as well. Sounds great. Um, talking about um, the other things you've been up to. So um, in your bio, you're a UK Polar Network Committee member. Now, what does that entail? Is that, that sounds like you go to North Pole and do stuff. What is the, what, what, what's your involvement in that organisation? Yeah, so the uh, UK Polar Network is a fantastic network of polar scientists and early career researchers to really try and I, um, give them opportunities and um, uh, to speak about their work and meet other early career researchers, as well as going to schools and doing a lot of education and outreach. So this is, as you say, all about the Arctic and the Antarctic. 
and um, and all about the work that goes on there. So I'm I'm not a polar scientist, but I have a huge passion for actually sharing um, sharing polar research to the younger generation because. For me, in my eyes, the only way that we're going to be able to really um, change policy and like bring about effect is to educate the youngest generation and inspire them to like come up with new ideas and innovate. And I think that um, that there's something about polar research that really captures your imagination. You know, you think about um, Antarctica, you think about the Arctic, and for kids, they're thinking about polar bears and thinking about all of these different animals that are there, and actually. You know, with the with the UKPN, the Polar Network, we can come into schools. We've got so many educational resources. So, if you have kids that would be interested in learning about um, uh, just anything about the poles, then I would really recommend like looking looking up the Polar Network and um, and requesting a visit, which is much easier online. <laughs> but um, yeah, we do a lot of educational outreach uh, to children and um, and try and get them involved with some of the experiments going on. And I guess linked to the, the Polar Network Committee is your is your role as an ambassador for the SheCan Ambassador, which is is supported by STEM. Uh, what do you do with, with that organisation, and what is your role within within that? Yeah, so um, so part of the uh, so the Tech, Tech SheCan Charter is something that was actually set up three years ago. It's had its third birthday recently. Happy birthday! Um, and this is really aiming to change the ratio, the gender ratio in STEM subjects and STEM careers. So the aim of Tech she Can is to, or one of the branches, is to actually um, get to children at a younger age, particularly girls, to introduce them to different tech careers and different um, role models who are working in different areas of uh, technology. So my one of my roles as part of this um, is to was to actually interview a lot of different role models about their jobs. Um, and it, over the pandemic, we filmed maybe I think we did 16 different online lessons looking at different areas that technology are used in. And some of the things that you wouldn't even think about sort of technology in retail, technology for the environment, technology in food. Um, and then we did these online lessons for kids maybe around age 11, I think. Yeah, about age 11 um, to try and show them all these really cool and wonderful jobs that are out there and to try and just open their eyes to uh, different possibilities. So that's one of the roles that I've had with Tech Can, and I'm very proud of that organisation. They're wonderful. What do you find the biggest perception barrier is when you've spoken to young young girls, uh, obviously particularly, when you're talking to them about STEM? Is there one thing that kind of sticks out or a few things that you often hear them saying to you? Yeah, I think one of the ones that I found the most shocking um, was, well, one statement from uh, a child was, oh, like STEM isn't, STEM isn't cool. Why would you want to do science? Like you'll, you won't have friends if you do STEM. Um, and oh you'll never get a boyfriend that was one of the statements and I remember just feeling really saddened by it to be honest because um it all seems like the reasons were to do with how it was perceived by others rather than um what you enjoy yourself so I mean I've definitely had it growing up uh people saying oh you do a lot of boy subjects I just think what no they're, they're subjects why is that a boy subject what and i never understood it 
but um but I know that it is it, it can be something that parents can inadvertently pass down to their kids by saying oh by maybe not suggesting oh why don't you do physics or have you considered math they might do that to their sons but they might not suggest it to their daughters and and that can just like naturally have an effect without even realizing it so um I think the way that we can change that is to actually show um show women who are working in STEM and like the, the power of visible role models is just it's just incredible so it's just like really pushing to show younger kids the that um all the women who are working in STEM so that they can have something and someone to relate to. It's almost you need to also educate the parents to a certain degree in terms of making sure they are they're aware of those 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 STEM careers for, for young uh, young women particularly. Yeah, definitely. Um, to, uh, going on, on to the communication thing, I'm going to continue on that route. Thinking about your role in uh, is it Cam FM your science radio show? Can you tell me what that is about and um, um, how, how often you contribute? That is a weekly show, is it, or or how are you involved in that that radio show? Yeah, so I um, I don't do it anymore, but I did for a while, okay. um, and it was a weekly science podcast radio show that went out live. Yeah, every week, and um, so for this we interviewed um, scientists in Cambridge about their cutting edge research, okay. and then basically worked to break it down, de-jargon it, get rid of the scientific terminology, and turn it into um, a fun discussion. Um, and this was this was a great experience because actually a lot of scientists, I mean, as a scientist, you kind of used to talking in long with long words and long sentences um, to other experts in your field. But actually, when they were speaking to us and we were trying to really like just use completely different vocabulary, and it was um, it was really great to try and distill what they were working on down to a very simple phrases so I really enjoyed that and I think one of my favorite pieces that we did um was so um someone was working on or realized or discovered that actually the what your mum eats when you you are in the womb determines your um how prone you are to certain diseases later on in your life so um and this was through some through looking at mice but um, but I actually really liked that because I just thought, oh, man, I can just blame my mum for any issues that I have in the future because she she didn't eat the right things. Well, when I was in her womb. Um, but I just thought that was quite an interesting discovery. I know that sounds, sounds amazing. I, was, I can't remember. It's probably Einstein, probably Einstein said it is that if you don't did he say that um, if you can't explain it in a simple enough way, you don't understand the, the science itself. I don't know <laughs> it might be Einstein, somebody like somebody, somebody like that has said that. And I think well, if you can explain things then. In a simple way, you really do, you really do understand it, don't you? Um, so you had the opportunity, which you applied to work for NASA as well, which was like this is like a, a dream job for many scientists um, and a great opportunity, I imagine. What did you learn when you were in NASA? Uh, what kind of cool things did you get up to? Yeah, so that was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. It was an internship just after my um, just after I graduated, and I was working as part of the. Uh, sample analysis at Mars team so it's called SAM and SAM is an instrument on the rover Curiosity which uh, was launched I can't remember how many years ago now 10 years ago I think and um, so SAM is looking to see if there's any if there are any traces of organic material stuck inside rocks so my job as an intern was to 
first of all, learn the software to actually work out how to analyze the data coming back from Mars and then run the same experiment on Earth. So they had a mock-up and like a duplicate instrument on Earth. And so I had to uh, run some known samples on this duplicate mock-up and then work as part of the team trying to see what data would actually look like. Um, so then that was kind of working out what known samples look like coming out of the instrument. And then that helped us to understand the data that's actually coming back from Mars. But it was a bit, it was, it was incredible because you just think, oh my goodness, this data is coming back from another planet. And it really captured that childish excitement inside me again. And I was like, wow. So yeah, it was an incredible almost, opportunity. Even when you work, you know, it still seems almost unbelievable that it could be even, uh, you know, possible that this, we could get signals from another planet is amazing. Um, now, obviously, apart from listening to this excellent podcast, um, what else do you think or what would you pass on to those young girls? What piece of advice would you give to those young, budding scientists or mathematicians that would help inspire them going down and following your route? Is there, is there something you could pick out that you think really makes a difference or could make a difference to those young people? I would say always try and when and when you think okay well what does trying actually mean it can feel really uncomfortable sometimes and I think it's about trying to be brave look for opportunities even if you don't meet a hundred percent of the criteria just try go for it and that might feel really as I say really uncomfortable and that you feel like oh I'm not I'm not good enough for this I, I can't do this just be brave stand with it take a few breaths if you need to and just just push because you'd be surprised and yes you might fail don't be afraid of failure because that's where you grow um that is definitely something that i think um we all we could all do is like don't be afraid of failure it doesn't define you and um just keep pushing so particularly when it comes to science like if you want to go down a research route, you will fail over and over and over and over again until you don't. And then you go on to the next challenge where you will continue to fail and fail and fail until you don't. But it's that's just the nature of it. So it's about learning from your failures or learning from your um, errors and trying to change your um, your way of attacking a problem. So yeah that's that's probably my bit of advice don't be afraid of failure really try push be brave even when it feels very uncomfortable and that's good that's definitely good um advice for life in general i think we always have that dip in whatever we're doing i think and then we push through the other side and uh, things look a lot brighter on the other side and a silly question to finish um which is obviously you're very technical you're like a, a stem uh a stem queen you know so much about maths and science but I wanted to ask you a silly question at the end, which was, do you like Apple phones or Android phones? Is there a, 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 a you know, a, a direction you've gone on that? I'm an, I'm an Apple an Apple gal. So okay. um, I like the way that everything syncs up very nicely with each other. So, um, yeah, my phone, my computer, my watch, they all link up and I quite like that. <laughs> and would it be easier to change your career or change to Android? Oh, my goodness. Oh, that is a good question. I actually think it would probably be easier to change career. <laughs> Setting my ways now with the Apple. Thank you. I appreciate you answering that silly question. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the View from the Lab podcast. I hope it will um, inspire some, some young um, 
then women to really dig into science and STEM and uh, not be afraid of failure and keep on trying and being brave. I think those are really important messages. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. Katie has been an inspiration to so many girls that have embarked on their own STEM journeys. Please share this podcast with any young people you know who would benefit from her wise words. Katie is a shining example of what can be achieved with a positive attitude and a good deal of grit. I expect we'll hear a lot more from her in the future. That's it from me for now, but I hope to see you on the next one. Until then, take care.